everyone, and welcome to the Filene Fill-In. I'm Holly Fearing with Filene. The Filene Fill-In is the podcast where we fill you in on what's been going on here at Filene's home base and out and about in the financial services world. This one is for all of you that love stories about money, where it came from, where it's going, how it's going to get there, and how our lives will always be impacted by the ways we use physical and digital currencies. Join us on this trip with Bill Maurer, Filene Fellow for our Center of Excellence on Emerging Technology, and Dean and Professor at the University of California, Irvine. Literally, it's a trip. We recorded this on the road from Chicago to our office in Madison. And don't worry, thanks to the impressive driving skills, for the most part, of Paul from our research team, we arrived safe and sound. What you're about to hear is a rare telling of stories and wide-ranging experiences from someone at the top of their field academically and in real-world application. Bill and I geek out about the anthropological origins of the concept of money and how the study of it has changed and not changed over the last several decades. We talk about how he once helped an overly enthusiastic computer chip manufacturer better understand the future of money. We talk about the strategies at play with digital payment providers, and I got his initial thoughts on Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency. Bill shares a fascinating story about the time he had a winding and metaphysical conversation with D. Hawk, the founder of Visa, and also that one time when he, quote, sat around in a room with bagels, redesigning the United States currency with the U.S. Treasury Secretary. Did you know that there has, in fact, been a woman and a person of color on the back of U.S. currency before? But as I learned, it's not what you might think. So what is the narrative we want money to tell? Ultimately, this is one of the driving questions that fuels, pun intended, Bill's passion and interest for all things money and technology related. This discussion only scratches that surface. But a parting piece of advice from Bill is that credit unions must absolutely be paying attention to AI and algorithms right now. Watch for related research coming from our Emerging Technology Center from Bill in the near future. And be sure you're booked to come to Filene's Big Bright Minds annual event on November 19th and 20th in Durham to continue gathering insights on this, plus many more issues impacting the industry every day. Okay, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Happy to be here, Holly. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, Hopefully you don't get motion sickness easily. We'll find out. (laughs) Because we are in the backseat of a car. We are driving to Filene's office right now. Thank you to Paul for driving us. Thanks, Paul. And we do have road trip snacks. If anyone gets hungry, we've got chips, we've got cookies, we've got lots of drinks in the front seat there. So uh, at any point in time, road trip snacks are always a good thing for a long drive. Excellent. So now that we have you trapped in the backseat of our car, we've got a lot of questions for you. And we wanted to start off by just kind of framing like your involvement with Filene. Anyone who's been following Filene for the last year would know that you are the Filene Fellow for our Center for Emerging Technology. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But, you know, even though you probably would love to spend all of your time working on Filene's research, you also have another life at UC Irvine. Can you tell us a little bit about what your work is there? Sure. Well, at UC Irvine, um, I'm a professor of anthropology and law, but more than that right now, I'm also the dean of the School of Social Sciences. So um, I'm the dean of a large school 
within UC Irvine, we've got about 9,000 undergrads. So my school alone is bigger than most liberal arts colleges. UCI as a whole has around 25,000 students. I've got about 170 faculty and a staff of about 100, and I basically manage and supervise the affairs of that school. Um, about half of my work, believe it or not, is fundraising. I'm the public face of the School of Social Sciences to the outside community, to our philanthropic uh, donors and community members, and to the different donor agencies and philanthropies around the country that want to support public higher education. Only a small part of our budget actually comes from the state of California anymore, like 11 or 12 percent. The rest is made up from tuition, grant funding, and then a big chunk from the philanthropic activity that the deans and I are engaged in. So that's a lot of it. Of course, there's a lot of crisis management. There's a lot of, you know, students who have, you know, bogus made up excuses for why they failed their final and want to appeal to me. Um, <laughs> and then I just tell them no. And that's that. Uh, but yeah, that, that's that's what I do. OK, so it sounds like you you have tons of free time. So much. <laughs> but you are a filing fellow. Why did you want to be our fellow for this research institute? Well, I've actually been involved with Filene for a number of years now. Um, uh, a few years ago, Filene reached out to me wanting help thinking through um, what changes to the idea of membership might come about with new kinds of social media and new sorts of affinity groups that form primarily online. And um, they were beginning to wonder, like, are there ways that these dynamic and digitally enabled affinity groups might be the basis for new models of membership? So I worked on a report for them about that and sent it off and then didn't hear from them for a while. And then my report was like magically transformed into this like beautiful slide deck and, and website um, because as you know, Filene does a great job at communicating the results of research to um, its own constituencies. I've heard um, that. So, so yeah, you've heard that, yeah. So that was really great. And it really kind of you know got me thinking more about the credit union movement and about um, its mission and values and cooperative finance. My own research has been on different kinds of alternative and cooperative finance and money and technology around the world. So you know it's sort of a natural fit. And when there were these discussions around having a center of excellence in emerging technology, I thought that this would be a great opportunity for me and for. Um, the graduate students I work with and my research team at UCI. We're really grateful to have you on board for that and you're just doing an amazing job with it. So we wanted well, thank to say you. thank you for that. And you were just out hanging out with us in Seattle at That's our right. Future of Trust event and you did a, a couple of talks there. What were some of the topics that you brought for our credit union audience at that event? Well, one of the, the things that we were doing at that event was really focusing on the question of trust and technology. And, you know, when you think about the, the technological landscape right now for um, banks and credit unions, there's a lot of potential, but also a, a lot of landmines because it's so easy to lose people's trust when, for instance, they start getting targeted ads, you know, in their email or in their web browser that are either like misfires, not quite right, or maybe a little too close or too much, or in some cases too late, right? You'll start getting ads for something after you've already bought the thing that you're now getting the ads for. And, you know, especially with people's money, you want to be really, really attentive and sensitive to maintaining trust 
in a data saturated, always digital, always mobile environment. So we were trying to think about those issues. We've been focusing particularly around questions of the use of algorithms and AI in customer facing, member facing relationships and ways that credit unions might be able to do it better than the banks because of credit unions, um, people helping people approach and their member oriented mission. So we're trying to, you know, not just explain what these technologies are to the credit unions, but also provide some frameworks for credit unions to use to think about what kind of technology deployments they might do themselves or they might engage a third party provider um, around. So those were some of the topics we talked about. And I thought that the topic was especially relevant or interesting for credit unions to kind of stew in for a little while because trust is something I think cooperative finance and community centric institutions like credit unions are already kind of ahead of the game on, but technology is traditionally and perceptively something that they are seen as being behind the game on. Right. So what advice would you have to credit unions on how they can leverage what they already have in trust and bring in the technology to really kind of differentiate themselves and outshine any other financial provider? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, I'd always recommend that they lead with that trust, lead with the member orientation all the time, remind people what a credit union is. Even credit union members forget what a credit union is because they operate just like a bank would, right? But they operate according to very different principles and with different goals in mind too. And I think that kind of remembering that and leading with that always, always, always is gonna put credit unions in good stead with their members and help them against the competition. Banks don't have to worry about that kind of thing, right? Banks are basically shareholder driven, but credit unions are member driven. And just reminding people of that basic fact, I think changes their orientation to their financial institution and gets them thinking differently about what the credit union does for them. And your academic background is in anthropology, but you also study money. So how did you come to, um, I guess, what I'm trying to say is, is we at Filene now have a lot of... What's an anthropologist like me doing (laughs) studying money like this? And many of them, you know, Taylor's kind of opened the door to bringing in a lot of anthropologist academics. But, you know, I think you kind of were the inspiration for him. And um, we've talked to a lot of people that study money in this context. And so can you just kind of frame up like what is the connection point between anthropology and the study of money? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, in the field at large, the study of money has always been a really important part of anthropology because in the 19th century and early 20th century, when anthropologists were going out around the world and trying to document um, simple societies, small-scale societies in remote locations, one of the things that they were interested in was how is it that people carry on economic life and economic transactions without the kind of money or objects of money that we're familiar with in the West. And so from the very beginning, there was a lot of emphasis on um, the rituals around exchange, around gifts, and around items exchanged at important parts of the life course at birth or marriage or death, Lots of focus on the material culture of so-called primitive money, the shells and bits of metal and bracelets and jewelry and that sort of a thing. So there's always been that within the field of anthropology. Now, I actually came to it a little bit late in my career. When I was doing my dissertation work, um, I wasn't really interested in money or finance at all. I was doing work in the Caribbean, initially looking at internal migration within the Caribbean region and trying to explain why 
patterns of global migration in the 80s and 90s in the Caribbean were changing away from the traditional migration corridors from the West Indies to New York or London or Toronto and more toward internal migration from, say, Barbados to the Cayman Islands or St. Kitts and Nevis to the British Virgin Islands. And really, you know, I just wanted to understand that. Why was this happening? What was happening around the post-colonial context of the Caribbean that led to these movements? And I was kind of an idiot because, you know, the answer was obvious, but I just wasn't looking in the right place or looking for it. The answer was what was happening in some of the islands of the Caribbean was the development of really robust financial services, right? The Cayman Islands became an offshore banking center. The British Virgin Islands, where I did my research, became an offshore incorporation center, kind of like a, a Delaware, but offshore. So that was propelling the growth of jobs in construction, in domestic service, but also in accountancy and law and all the ancillary services associated with having a, a financial services hub in your country. So that got me thinking, hmm, you know, there really aren't many people in anthropology who are looking at financial services. And this is a really weird kind of financial service. Like, this is mostly providing um, you know, tax haven kind of stuff for people trying to hide their money from their own country's revenue collectors. When I was in the British Virgin Islands, there were a lot of instances where a lawyer would come to incorporate on behalf of a client in the British Virgin Islands. And the typical client was a wealthy Brazilian man who was trying to hide his assets from his wife so that he could shunt stuff to his mistress, right? And I was like, oh, great. That's like got everything anthropologists love. There's like kinship and like power and, and money and whatever. So I really kind of dived into thinking about finance anthropologically. And that led to a bunch of other projects. But, you know, to get to the, the stuff most relevant to Filene, I was invited to write a review essay on the anthropology of money and finance. And this is the kind of thing that one does at a certain stage in one's career where you're kind of summarizing everything that's gone before and kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying this is the state of the field right now around these issues. So I wrote this thing and usually when you write things like that, you assume that a few grad students are going to read it and like your friends and you know the handful of people in your subfield, but that's it. Well, what happened with that paper was one day I was sitting in my office. At the time, I was the chair of the anthropology department, and there was a knock on my door, and I opened the door, and there's this guy there holding a printout of my paper, and it was all marked up, like, like crazy town marked up, right? Um, and he waves it, and he's like, did you write this paper? And I'm like, okay, like, there, I have no alarm, but, but Norma is right next door. I'm perfectly safe. And I'm like, yes. And he says, well, my name is Scott Mainwaring, and I work at Intel. And um, I'd really love to talk to you about this for a while. So I let him in and we ended up talking for about three or four hours. And basically um, at the time, Scott, who's become a good friend and colleague and is no longer with Intel, but at the time he was part of a team that was tasked with helping Intel think about the future of money. And um, you know, Intel is a chip manufacturer, a chip designer. And most of what the engineers and computer scientists at Intel were thinking about with respect to money was basically security and encryption, right? How are we going to design our chips so that if people are having their money on a chip somehow, it's going to be safe and secure? And how do we do encryption so that data is, you know, uh, protected and so on and so forth? And Scott had this hunch that none of that was really going to matter. That at the end of the day, people aren't, don't care what's happening under the hood. What they care about, at least where their money is concerned, is 
can they do the things with their electronic money that they do with their physical money that are not just limited to buying and selling stuff? He was thinking about things like the way that people put, you know, the way that a grandparent would put a $20 bill in a birthday card, or the way that people throw coins in a fountain, or the way that people um, tip or fold up money in special ways when they tip or for good luck, the way that people make money origami, right? He was thinking about all the different kind of social and cultural practices associated with money that go beyond just um, buying and selling. And he had this hunch that if he could convince Intel that those things were important, then whatever Intel did would really have legs and kind of become stickier with consumers and, and really for Intel with the, their own clients who build the things that consumers use. And as I said, that, that sparked a, a collaboration that continues to this day. And I'll, I'll also just point out that, you know, uh, he was quite prescient when WeChat Pay and Alipay launched in China a few years ago. One of the ways that they were able to attain such market share so quickly with so many Chinese is they did these promotions around um, creating digital red envelopes for giving money at Chinese New Year, right? So they totally took that idea that to get this thing kind of generalized in the population, to, to socialize the idea of our digital money, let's put it in the context of a cultural practice that everybody loves and everybody does. So they made these little digital hongbao, which are those little red envelopes that you give at New Year, where you could send someone whatever, like 20 cents digitally, People thought it was fun, people thought it was cool, and now arguably China is leading the world in terms of the penetration of mobile and digital payment services. Yeah, that must be fascinating uh, culturally to think about the physicality of money and the physical item of it and handing it off and that there's a that they found a solution digitally that, that was accepted yeah. in the yeah. same way. So you also have written a book about community currency and Islamic finance. Yeah, so... So what's the connection point between those two? So that's an interesting question. So this came about after I did the work in the Caribbean and I was looking at other like weird forms of finance. And I was interested in the community currency movement just because it's, you know, weird and strange and interesting. Um, a colleague had uh, educated me a little bit about Islamic finance and the effort to create financial institutions that don't rely on interest because interest, according to some interpretations of Islamic law, um, is forbidden in Islamic law. And what was so interesting about studying those two communities was, first of all, they themselves were already connected. Like, I had people in the Islamic finance world tell me, oh, oh, you really should look at these community currency programs because they're also trying to do stuff without interest. They're not proceeding according to, to Sharia but they're really similar to what we do. And I also had people in the local currency movement say to me, you know, have you ever looked at Islamic banking? It's really interesting how it's kind of asset backed, not debt backed, and we're trying to do the same kind of thing. So their own worlds already interconnected. And so part of what I did in that project was try to, first of all, map out those interconnections, but then also think about the ways that um, these things have similar foundations that cause us to call into question how we have thought about money and finance historically, and to think about some of the other models that are out there that work in the world. Mm -hmm. And what was your kind of key learning from that or takeaway out of that? There are a couple. I mean, so, you know, one was simply that 
it is possible to kind of imagine dilating the possibilities for money and finance in the contemporary world and create institutions that work, but work differently from the interest-bearing banking model. Another one that was that kind of was a little sidetracked, but I got completely absorbed in it, had to do specifically with how American Muslims were understanding Islamic banking and Islamic law. So in many ways, it moved a little bit away from the banking part specifically and more into the law part. And that this brings in my anthropology of law background. What was so interesting is that at the time I was doing that research, there were two providers in the United States of Islamic mortgage alternatives, so home financing mechanisms that didn't rely on uh, a traditional mortgage. And one of them, and I, I won't go into the details here, but one of them was like super duper like compliant with Islamic law, like really hardcore. The other one was basically fee-based, and the fee that you had to pay instead of your interest rate was pegged to an interest rate. So it was kind of, you know, finding a loophole, finding a way around the restrictions to provide a product that technically was compliant with Islamic law, but, but a little iffy. What was so interesting was that I found that recent converts to Islam really loved the super duper Sharia compliant one. And these people were like, you know, um, more socially liberal, politically progressive, whatever. They really, really, really wanted that one. And more socially conservative and traditional folks, many of whom were recent migrants to the U.S., were buying the one that, to my eyes anyway, was actually less compliant with Islamic law. But what that other company did was they had all the trappings of applying for a, a regular mortgage. There were all these forms, there was tons of paperwork, there were all these things you had to sign and there were seals and you know all that. And in interviews, people said, well, this just felt more like the law. This felt more legal. This is what I think the law is. And if this is the law and those people on the other side of the table are Muslims, this must be Islamic law, right? So it really turned into a project about um, immigrant legal consciousness and their idea that you know, law looks like a certain thing. Law means forms and stamps. So um, it's like the theater of it. More exactly. So. That yeah. really, really was compelling. Whereas the converts were really into learning about Sharia through this very, very strict mortgage product. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting, like that might be a more extreme case, but it's an interesting thing for credit unions to think about how they could apply to serving different niche groups of their communities that have special requirements or even maybe laws that are allowing or disallowing them to participate in the traditional products mm -hmm. and services that they yeah, offer. Absolutely. The ITIN lending is an example of it, of just like making a small adjustment to the mortgage process. Um, but, you know, as more people are going to be contract workers, 1099 workers, they're going to have different financial needs. LGBTQ community has different needs. Um, definitely students have different um, potential needs for loan products. And so it's a good lesson to apply of like understanding your members and what they specifically need and want and then tracking against that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, too, with credit unions, they they still think that they know their members better than the bank, but that's because I think they still assume that their membership is community demarcated or employer demarcated, but it's not anymore for many credit unions. You know, just because your school's first doesn't mean that everyone who's a member is directly connected to education anymore. Maybe they joined when they were a student and now they're not, and now they're working in 
you know, whatever, like pharmaceutical stuff, or they're driving for Lyft or whatever. Yeah, so really drilling down into who your members are, I think is super important. Yeah, and it's not like a one point in time kind of thing because who your members are five years ago, today, five years from now, all could be different things. So I wanna switch gears a little bit to something that Taylor told me about you. Really interesting fact, it it seems as though you were a consultant on a re- consulted, sorry, you were consulted on a recent redesign of US currency. Is that true? Yeah, that is true. And we don't really know if that redesign is ever going to happen now, but um, a few years ago, um, Jacob Liu, who was then the Treasury Secretary, uh, convened a group of scholars, mostly scholars and a few other people. There were like 13 or 14 of us at the Smithsonian. Um, to have a discussion with Rosie Rios, who at the time was the treasurer of the United States. The treasurer is the one who signs the bills and is like responsible for banknote production and distribution over the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. They convened a group of us in the Smithsonian to talk about initially replacing Hamilton on the $10 bill with somebody else. And the group of people that they convened was almost entirely historians, academic historians, historians of the founding of the Republic, historians of the Civil War, uh, women's historians, historians of slavery, and historians of money. And then um, there was a guy representing the numismatists, like some high up in the American Numismatic Society or Association. There was the curator from the National Numismatic Collection at the Smithsonian, and she had actually brought out for us to look at examples of banknote design from around the world and also from other periods of U.S. history. And there was, I think, one sort of like design person. And then there was me. And I was the only person from west of the Mississippi. So I think I think somewhere someone was like, oh, wait, there's the whole rest of the country. We should have someone from there. And then also I think someone was like, oh, besides the design person, none of these people actually work with living human beings. and think about what they do and how they interact with actual money today. So we sat around in a room with bagels before the treasurer or the secretary arrived. And um, a couple of the people in the room sort of said, you know, look, there's all this talk about what this redesign is going to be. And everyone knows that, you know, uh, uh, the treasury secretary has a strong interest in having a woman on the money. Um, But we really, really should be firm about not replacing Hamilton because Hamilton, after all, was the founder of our national banking system and, you know, uh, certainly a better guy than Jackson. Let's try to make the case for, like, getting rid of Jackson and changing the 20 and um, putting not just a woman, but a woman of color. So we all, before this discussion, kind of got on the same page about it. And the curator had um, brought examples of bills that were fascinating. So there actually has been a woman on the U.S. currency in the past. It was, Mar- it was Martha Washington on a $1 silver note in the 19th century. And there have also been people of color on banknotes produced in this country. But they were in chains on the back of Confederate currency, which is, you know, great. Yay. Um, so that got us thinking about the way that currency tells stories but can also loop around to in an arc to kind of close a narrative. And we thought a lot about what is the narrative that we want the money to tell. Anyway, um, we had a wide-ranging discussion once the, the treasurer and the secretary came in. Um, the secretary laughed, le- left after a little bit of time. 
um, Rosie Rios uh, drew our attention to the back of banknotes and talked a lot about how her favorite is the $2 bill because instead of a building, it has a scene. Yeah. And that got us thinking about, well, you could take the backs of the existing bills and keep the buildings, but, you know, activate them with a scene, an important historical scene that took place at that building. So, for instance, if you keep Lincoln on the front of the five and keep the Lincoln Memorial on the back of the five, why not populate that Lincoln Memorial scene with Martin Luther King and the I Have a Dream speech, right? Anyhow, we had a great discussion. It was terrific. And then we all went away and didn't really hear anything for a while. And then we were all invited to a conference call where um, Rosie Rios announced what then became public, which was that they were going to not just redesign one bill, but the entire family of bills, and that they um, would indeed keep Hamilton, um, keep the Treasury building on the back, but populate it with scenes from the first suffrage protest, which was at the Treasury building. And, um, and the, the one that everyone knows about, replace Jackson on the 20 with Harriet Tubman and activate the back with important leaders in the civil rights movement. Well, you know, right now we have no idea what's going to happen because um, with the Trump administration, um, it looks like this has been put on ice for a bit, although um, there are indications that a lot of the work has already been done toward this redesign. So I'm hopeful that it will see the light of day someday. I think it's interesting to put so much thought into the design of physical currency when, I, mean, I don't think we'll move to a cashless society anytime soon, but I wonder if you think that anybody under maybe 20 today cares at all what it even looks yeah, like. Yeah, you know, I think people do care. So, so first of all, you know, cash is not going away and there's actually been a kind of slow and steady uptick in cash use um, over the past few years, according to the Fed. Um, cash remains um, one of the, you know, crucial payment mechanisms for un- and underbanked people. And as long as this country is going to have such a high level of income inequality, we are unfortunately going to have a very high proportion relative to our sort of peer countries in the industrialized north of un- and underbanked people. So cash is going to be there. Cash is also um, super important for some young people in just teaching them things, right? So cash, uh, real or play money is always used in schools to teach not just basic financial literacy, but also just basic mathematics. So I think it's still going to be there. Even if it's not in everybody's pocket, I think it's important that the nation tell its important stories on this um, means of mass media, because, you know, uh, in many ways, paper currency is still one of the most ubiquitous forms of mass media in the world. And the US dollar in particular, because it circulates globally. And I think as a country, it's important for us to ask ourselves, what stories about America do we want conveyed to the rest of the world? Do we want stories about, frankly, forced labor, slaveholding, and imperialism? Or do we want stories about, you know, that great arc of emancipation and liberty on which the country was founded, even if it has not lived up to its ideals all the time? But similarly to how you talked about the solution that was found for like the red envelopes for digital currency, do you think there's a solution for having that story be attached to um, money when it's used in a digital, digital format? That's a really interesting question. I mean, the thing is that right now, um, 
pretty much all uh, digital payment providers are private companies that are more interested in promoting their own brand or mark or paradoxically making themselves as invisible as possible so you don't even know what's happening but payment is happening in the background right if i think about um, the way that braintree powers you know ambient payment for uber lyft or airbnb um, braintree is not a household name at all and that's just fine from its point of view it doesn't want you thinking about what fees are being levied on the payments that you make whenever you step out of a, a lift right so it's an important question there's the central bankers around the world responsible for the making of the money um, are actually grappling with this issue a lot and wondering about whether there should be a central bank digital currency, like a central bank version of like Bitcoin or whatever. Um, but then they, they come back to that point about the money doing more than just you know, facilitating payment, that the money also conveys things about the nation and they don't necessarily want to lose that. It does feel very much so like with physical currency that is backed by the U.S. government and with digital currency that is backed by giant corporations. Yep. So it's an interesting like it definitely feels different. Yeah. 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 And, you know, physical currency is pretty magical. Like when I hand you a dollar, it's yours just like that. Right. I mean, and I can't get it back. <laughs> and um, all of it is mine. And all of it is yours. Like it, some it, cents go somewhere exactly, else. Exactly. Right? It settles at par. Hmm. Paul doesn't get any. <laughs> we can tip him though. <laughs> so I think it's time to talk about what Facebook is doing now because we kind of are dabbling into that area, cryptocurrency and uh, talking about large corporations kind of getting into the money game. Um, so as you know, um, Facebook is now developing a cryptocurrency called Libra, governed by the Libra Association, a group of companies um, that have an equal say in how the, the cryptocurrency is managed. And um, I was just reading up about it, and the, the Libra Association sounds very interesting. Currently 30-ish organizations are part of it. Facebook is hoping that expands to 70-ish soon. Um, but uh, what is your opinion on Facebook getting into the cryptocurrency game? Well, so just for people listening to this, we're recording this just like a week after the announcement, maybe, of Libra. So uh, a lot is still in flux. Um, I'm still not up to speed even on how the thing is supposed to work. But um, there's a couple things just right off the bat. The first thing is, it sure looks like it's not going to be a cryptocurrency, at least in the way that we've come to understand them through the model of things like Bitcoin. There's not going to be a decentralized system controlled by no one. And there's not going to be a money um, that has value simply because people believe it has value or should have value. Instead, Libra is going to be managed and controlled by this consortium with seemingly Facebook at the helm but also it's going to be backed one-to-one -one with a basket of reserve currencies issued by governments. Um, so to me, that sounds a lot more like a digital prepaid token or coupon than it does like a money or a cryptocurrency. It sounds like, you know, there was another experiment Facebook trial tried a while ago that I don't remember what it was called, but like Facebook, Facebook bucks or something, where, you know, it was essentially just sort of like Starbucks stars, like a, a, a points system tied to value denominated in whatever actual currency. So it seems like it's going to be like that. 
And the whole point of having the consortium is that those are people who all agree to accept it and use it for payments. So just on the, on the technology side, it doesn't sound that exciting or revolutionary to me. On a kind of regulatory side, um, what they're going to be doing, it seems, is having the funds backing the Libra tokens kept in a bank account, managed by whom I don't know, that will generate interest for the partners who participate. So instead of a system that basically is generating value for those who use it, this is a system that's going to generate value for the members of the consortium. So that's interesting. And again, kind of just a different sort of model. The, the other, you know, big, huge elephant in the room is that, you know, people already are becoming increasingly skeptical about Facebook's ability to maintain and protect their private information or whatever they share on Facebook, which isn't necessarily private, but still. Um, how are people going to feel about Facebook, Facebook getting into the money business? Um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of sort of skepticism and, and resistance to overcome. At the end of the day, if it's going to catch on, it's got to work just as easy as or better than something like PayPal or Venmo. And it's not clear to me what the value proposition is going to be for the user at this point, any different from PayPal or Venmo. Right, because I don't think that you can really make it much easier to make payments peer-to-peer. -peer. It may be that this really is a play for um, other markets like India and China, and um, basically kind of trying to cut into the world of WeChat with like a cell phone-based, text message-based, peer-to-peer um, transfer system, a lot like M-Pesa in Kenya. And again, M-Pesa in Kenya, the money is backed one-to-one -one with funds that are held in a trust account, actually, um, because the Kenyan regulator was worried about, you know, if those funds are intermediated or lent out, what happens if all of a sudden everyone tries to, you know, redeem their M-Pesa money at a, at a kiosk and cash out. So they locked it up in a trust. It looks like that's not going to happen with um, Libra, and then that raises a bunch of questions in my mind about the, the stability of, of the system and the potential for it to, you know, put customer funds at risk, which, you know, we don't, we don't ever really think about this, but, you know, for people who have tons of money, like loaded up on their Starbucks card or, you know, money sitting there in PayPal, that's also just sitting there. It's not insured by anybody. It's not a deposit. Uh, anything could happen to those funds if the company decides to change its policy. So, you know, there's some significant consumer protection issues here yeah. too. And we'll see how it plays out. The regulations, I think, scramble to catch up and things are already kind of happening before they can yeah. regulate. At some level too, you know, a regulator can say with something like Libra, you want to go do this thing? Go nuts. Have a nice time. If something terrible happens, don't come crying to us. We're not going to bail you out, right? That That is a stance that the regulator could take in this case. And when you put it in that context, at, at first it seems like Man, Facebook is not the one to do this. I mean, they have lost a lot, a lot of trust. But when you look at it on the global scale, it is kind of a more universal system. Um, it's easier to join Facebook than it is to join an, a U.S. banking system if you're in Africa. And so everyone can participate. But I also wonder if maybe this was a strategy of Facebook 
from a long time ago and they didn't anticipate kind of the, the loss of trust that they've had in more recent yeah, years. Because yeah. I don't know that I would trust um, Facebook to, I, I don't I don't want Facebook to have my cell phone number, let alone my banking right. numbers. Yep. Um, so that'll be very interesting to see how that develops. And I see that Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, they're already part of the association to participate in regulation of the cryptocurrency or the Facebook version of that. Does that indicate to you that this is maybe a bigger deal than we think, or is that just... Uh, Not necessarily. I mean, I think some of that is like fear of missing out and wanting to be seen as part of this big game and gamble. Right. Um, and wanting to be in in case the thing actually takes off. Visa and MasterCard have been in a lot of things that haven't gone anywhere mm -hmm. um, in the past. Yeah, and they can kind of afford to, they can afford to be you know, investigating it at least. It's also a reminder to Facebook of, you know, don't forget, we actually run the payment rails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't forget us. Yeah, that is a good point. So speaking of Visa, we know that you have recently had a chance to sit down and talk with the founder of Visa, D. Hawk. So what was that all about? That's right. So someone associated with Filene shared with D some of the work that I had done. And D went outside of his the normal channels through which he is managed and actually contacted me directly and said, um, I'd love for you to come to my house and talk for a while. And so then I said, well, I'm going to be in town with Taylor from Filene and then our colleague Lana Swartz from University of Virginia. Can I bring them too? And he said, sure. So he sent us his address. We rented a car. We drove to his house. It took us a really long time, almost the same as just this, this journey right now, um, all the way around Puget Sound to the very bottom of Puget Sound. And we went into his house and it's a very modest home on the shore. And he is, I forget how old he is, like in his 90s, maybe 91. Um, he is as sharp as anyone I've ever met. And we talked for several hours about the history of Visa, about trends in payment more broadly, and about, most importantly, his kind of underlying philosophy. So Dee is a fascinating character with a very, very big kind of mind who's thinking about ways of organizing social processes so that you can have simultaneously competition and cooperation. And he calls these chaotic organizations, but there's chaos and order at the same time. Oh, I like that. And, and, you know, he got into, like, the organization of matter in the universe. He got into the way that leaves on trees are all trying to optimize their own sun exposure, but if for the sake of the organism one needs to fall off, it will, right? I mean, this kind of amazing, expansive way of thinking about things that um, for him, you know, he tells in terms of the way that he got uh, the different banks to sign on to the visa experiment when that was started, where everyone had to cooperate and give up a little, but at the same time, everybody was able to compete with one another in acquiring and issuing um, cards and accounts. So it was just super fascinating. I'll, I'll never forget one moment where uh, Taylor asked him, you know, if you could name like one book that really influenced and inspired you, what would it be? And he turned to, to Taylor and kind of scoffed at him and said, that's such an industrial age way of thinking. What, for what part of my life, for what part of my career, for which purpose, right? And then he, he rattled off tons and tons of works, a really eclectic range um, that have influenced him at various points in his life. And then later we noticed on his shelf, 
he had um, a bunch of anthropology. He had Margaret Mead, he had Gregory Bateson. Um, it was kind of amazing to see. He at one point had accumulated a library of around, I think he said 5,000 volumes. And then um, when he moved into his current place, he pared it back. But still the whole place was lined with, with books. That's fascinating. It's kind of full circle around like how anthropology then fits into the study of money. Absolutely. Definitely at the core of the way we um, interact as a society. It's fascinating to think about. So I wanted to kind of bring back to your history and kind of your upbringing as an anthropologist of money. You taught an undergraduate class on the anthropology of money. What kinds of things did you teach? Even though I'm dean, I teach one class a year, and I try to do that undergrad class every other year. So I just taught my class called The Future of Money. It's a lower division, introductory level class. It attracted, uh, there were 112 students in the class. Almost all of them passed. Uh, <laughs> um, about 60% of them were computer science majors. So that's interesting all by itself, right? And these are kids who were like, they've heard something about Bitcoin or they're thinking about getting a job at PayPal or whatever. Um, and the other 40% were from all over the place, mostly social sciences, but from all over the place. And what I do is the first third of the class is called What is Money? And we basically do the, the origins of money and the archaeology of money and then bring it up into sort of cultures of money today. The next third is um, all about cryptocurrency, just because that's a thing that people want to know about. So we do basic, basic stuff on blockchain. I teach them about Bitcoin. Um, we have a fun little lab where I send them, well, they're divided up into teams of 10. I send each team leader some Bitcoin. It's like the only class where you get money from the professor. Um, and then they have to send it on to the other people in their group, and then they send it on, and so on, and so on, and so on. And then the last person to get it is supposed to send it back to the TA, who was then supposed to send it back to me, which did happen eventually, but took, took a while. We're dealing with very small amounts of money here. Um, but what they had to do is actually then go into the blockchain, into a blockchain explorer, and find the transaction, right, to teach them about how that ledger works and the underlying system. So it didn't really require them to do any coding, but it did teach them a little bit of code, which was kind of fun for me as a non-computer scientist to, to try to do and try to talk about and lecture about. And then the last third of the class is called, what is the payments industry? And that's where I introduce them to the entire payments ecosystem. We talk about the origins of, of Visa and MasterCard. We do a lot of stuff on the regulatory situation in the US, which I tie to the history of economic inclusion and exclusion. So we do what was happening around the history of redlining and why there had to be like a Fair Housing Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and all of that sort of stuff to help them understand that, you know, things that they're doing every single day have law behind them to ensure that everybody has access to these basic, basic, basic things that we need to do our economic lives, you know, to really get them thinking about um, how anytime we're talking about payment, we're talking about politics, and that if we don't keep our eye on those politics, certain things are likely to slip away. Mm -hmm. So comparing that to your first anthropology class as an undergrad, what kinds of things were you learning then? Oh my gosh, my first anthropology class as an undergrad was crazy. It was called Peoples and Cultures of the Soviet Union, and we read Stanislavski's An Actor Prepares, right? The kind of foundational book on method acting. 
And then we read Chekhov, The Three Sisters, and the professor was basically trying to explain to us how Stanislavski was trying to teach Russians how to act Russian, and that in itself is like this interesting like epistemological problem, and ethnography is kind of like that because anthropology is trying to teach other people how you act like a whatever, like a person from, you know, a remote island in the Philippines, right? even though you're not that person or whatever. The, the interesting thing for Stanislavski is it was teaching Russians how to be Russian, which is making Russians objectify their own culture, which we don't normally do, but which as anthropologists we're taught always to do. We're always supposed to be, you know, not just making the strange familiar, but making the familiar strange. So it was like a mind-bending experience taught by a crazy man, but it was a lot of fun. I was hooked. That sounds awesome. I mean, it it sounds like uh, nothing really has changed. I mean, we can talk about specific changes, but the principles of it have stayed the same. And the principles of the, the language of currency, the language of millennials, the language of Russians, whatever it is that the cultural languages, um, they, they dictate a lot of our behaviors and, and, going back to just again what credit unions offer to their members and how they can connect with their members the more you can understand the cultural language of the people that you're trying to serve absolutely i think that's going to be a really basic point like often people will ask me like you know wow anthropologists always have such great insights about things like what do they do what's their secret sauce and i'm like um it's not magic we just talk to people right you go and you talk to people and you listen to what they have to say and you realize that where you're standing or sitting or what you're thinking isn't actually like the whole world and that even someone who you think is is very similar to you might have an entirely different perspective on things or a different orientation and our job really is to kind of surface those orientations and spotlight those differences as well as the similarities to then help everyone understand a more expansive and capacious um, perspective on the human experience. Yeah. So I want to ask you some rapid fire round of questions that um, D. Hawk might have said were very industrial um, way of thinking type questions. Okay. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> first of all, do you have any pets? Yes, I have a dog named Rufus who is a hundred pound bloodhound. He has been scent trained, but not in a very good way. Mostly that's just to kind of tire him out. I have a very, very, very old cat named Ginger who is kind of getting creaky and, you know, we just won't discuss her age. And then there are assorted fish. Okay, yes, I've heard about your fish hobby. What What is the deal with that? <laughs> what is the deal with my fish hobby? So there's something very soothing and peaceful about creating a completely controlled environment full of, like, beautiful green plants and little fishies. Mm-hmm. And I try to make the environment more for them than for me. Okay. So, so people will see, um, I have two tanks, people will see them and be like, where's the fish? And I'm like, that's the point. Oh, yeah. They're just hanging out in their own In one of them, spaces. they've begun to reproduce, which is soon going to pose some problems for me. But I'll, I'll deal with that this summer. <laughs> Do you have coral in there, too? No, no. They're all freshwater. Okay. okay. Yeah, no. Saltwater is way too stressful. Yeah. Okay. I've heard that you have a, a blackberry still. And here it is. Ta-da. Why do you have a BlackBerry? Because I really, really love tactility and the physical keyboard. And I can go so much faster on this than on a a virtual keyboard. That's the primary reason. Also, I love it. I love its design. It's a beautiful object. And as long as they continue to make them, I will have one. I was just going to say, where can you even buy one of those? The internet. Okay. Or Nigeria. Um, So don't don't break that. (laughs) What is your favorite cocktail? 
oh, my favorite cocktail would probably be a perfect Manhattan, which is like a regular Manhattan, but equal parts dry and sweet vermouth. I think they have good Manhattans in Wisconsin. Is it true that they put saccharin in the drinks in Wisconsin? I don't think so. Where did you hear that? I just heard that. Paul? Paul shaking his head no. That sounds like a blasphemous rumor about... That just might be a tall tale. (laughs) I know they make sweet, a lot of sweet drinks, a sweet martini, sweet Manhattan, um, but it, it is a, a old fashions. Are you, do you like yeah, old fashions? Old fashioned is okay. Maybe a little too sweet. Yeah. It's fine. That's a very strong thing of pride to make a, a good old oh, fashioned yeah. in Wisconsin. So um, hopefully you'll have... Do they add soda water in or not? I believe they do. Mm. Yeah. 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 Thumbs down on the soda water. Okay. I think you can get it either way, though. They'll ask a lot of questions about what you like, and and they'll make you the perfect version. So, okay. Uh, what is your favorite Filene research report? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Let's see. You have well, to have a favorite. <laughs> I mean, I kind of love the credit union of the twenty first century, and there's a couple reasons why I love it. I love it for, I love it for what it is. I love it for the thought experiment of. What if we were to imagine the Federal Credit Union Act today? What would it look like? I love that because it's almost like a science fiction exercise. Yeah. I wish it would be more science fiction-y, but there you are. The other thing I love is that it got produced in physical book form. And um, that was done like intentionally to like think about like the importance of the comfort and security of, of certain forms that are, it's important to hold on to. And in this case, that form is cooperative finance as kind of a beacon. So, Paul just decelerated rapidly, so we kind yeah. of looked. Oh, and he also just took his hands <laughs> off the steering wheel. That was what that pause was. I was paying attention to uh, the road, so is that is that the end of your story about that? Oh, I think that's the end of my story, okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite quote? A favorite quote? Well, there's one that I often use, but... Um, but I know that it's sort of not okay, which is... <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have to hear it now. Well, no, it's just that it gets a little dark. So um, I often will use the Helen Keller quote of, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart, right? To like tell people optimism, whatever. But then often my more cynical colleagues will remind me what happened to her next. And they're like, Bill, you're a Pollyanna. And I'm like, but it's good to be a Pollyanna sometimes. So, and I still do believe that. Good, I like that. So the next question is kind of, about that Pollyanna mentality, what is the one change that you would like to impact upon the world? Small question. <laughs> wow. That's hard. I have a very general thing, which is just, it would be nice if people would just be more attentive. That's good. Like, to everything. Like, the world around us is pretty magical and wonderful, and it's easy to go through it without, like, noticing. And, um, you know, it's sort of an anthro point, but it's also just a general point of, like, maybe you should pay attention to what's going on around you. Um, in a proactive and intentional way. And then maybe you would be appreciative more and you'd experience the joy of the world more and kind of wake up and go, today, exclamation point, Um, instead of, you know, getting caught up in just our own things and falling into dark chasms. So, yeah, it's a Pollyanna answer. You'd be more um, observing of others around you and then able to connect to them better. So, yeah, I think that's a great thing to strive for. Okay, uh, I also want to kind of bring it back to our credit union listeners and leave them with a nugget from you around something that they should be paying attention to right now in the realm of technology. They should definitely be paying attention to everything happening in the domain of AI and algorithms. 
there's going to probably be some seismic shifts in the way that data is dealt with. This is being driven by regulatory change, but also by sort of popular demand. Um, people are starting to notice and become concerned about the way that their data is being handled and manipulated and used and sometimes breached or stolen or lost. Um, this is going to really, really, really change how we deal with everything, not just financial services, but everything around us. So to the extent that credit unions can take the lead in charting out, you know, principles-driven ways of dealing with data and data custodianship and data in algorithms, I think that credit unions will be able to, you know, really leverage their existing brand and carry it forward into the future in a really meaningful mm -hmm. way for And people. I know you have a couple of research reports that are coming out from the Center for Emerging Technology on yep. exactly that. That's right. So people stay tuned for that. Okay, I have one more question, and I feel like this wouldn't be a fair road trip without asking this question. I'm going to ask it to Paul. Are we there yet? <laughs> Not yet. We're almost there. <laughs> almost there. Okay. We'll wait a little bit longer. Anything else that you want to have our listeners know or um, that we didn't cover before we end this podcast? Nothing I can think of. We're driving through beautiful countryside. And we're somewhere in the Midwest. There's a big thing over there that says Beloit, which makes me think that yes. we're close. Okay, we've only got uh, about 45 minutes left to go. Woo. All right, well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This is really fun. This is Thanks the first for time. driving, Paul. <laughs> first time we've done the filing fill-in from a car, and uh, maybe there'll be more of these in the future. All right, we'll talk to you later. Bye. All right, that's it for the fill-in, folks. Thanks again for listening. And thank you to Bill for being so fun and willing to do our first ever car podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we talked about today, visit Filene.org and check out our technology research page. Visit Filene.org slash events to register for Big Bright Minds and all our impactful member events this year and next. If you like this episode, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. And make sure you're subscribed to the Filene Fill-In Podcast so you can keep up with what's going on at Filene. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch about today's show, email me at hollyf at filene.org or find us on Twitter at Filene Research. Until next time, thanks everyone. <laughs>